Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. As James mentioned, there's Bibles in the back. If you didn't come with one, you can literally just go esv.com, follow along in a Bible there. We're going to be um, continuing on the journey through the book of Matthew, this, this long journey that you, we've been on for a number of different years. Um, this morning, we're going we're gonna to be working through chapter 21, chapter 21, and it's a really pivotal point in the gospel of Matthew, really pivotal point. Chapter 21 begins the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. This is where also Jesus enters Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel for the first time. Now we know other gospels say Jesus entered Jerusalem much earlier in his life. He's visited there multiple times. But Matthew holds this detail out until now. Because what he wants us to see is the whole book is a progression in the life of Jesus towards Jerusalem and what's going to be accomplished in this last week of his life. So um, Jesus has been healing and delivering and, and meeting with people. And actually, just a couple days prior to the events that we're going to read about today, raised um, Lazarus from the dead. And what you remember, all these times, Jesus has been saying, I, don't tell anyone, go away quietly. But now the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. Now, Matthew really wants us to see the culmination of what this has all led to. And so what we're going to see as we read the first 22 verses of chapter 1 is the revelation of three things in greater clarity than we've seen them before. The three things principally revealed in these 22 verses, and that is who Jesus is, what Jesus came for, and the mission Jesus has for his people. So open your Bibles, um, read with me, let's read together these first 22 verses, and then I'll pray, we'll, we'll start to um, break this apart. It begins, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king's coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them the cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. A quotation from Psalm 8. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, only leaves. 
And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree marvel at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you have faith, the word of God, let me pray. Uh, Jesus, we pray in your name, just that your words, this truth of who you are, what you came for, what you've um, tasked us with, all the truth that's contained in the scripture. Um, Holy Spirit, would you come and empower me to be able to, as a vessel and a gifted servant of yours, just be used to make much of Jesus. I pray that yeah, you empower me, Holy Spirit, that, and you would help us all to hear what it is you want to communicate this morning. And I, I pray and I plead in the name of Jesus to you, Father God. Amen. So as you just heard, this chapter opens um, with Matthew saying they drew near to Jerusalem and to the Mount of Olives. When you see places listed in the Bible, it's, it's important to take note of this. Sometimes there's no place mentioned, and every once in a while it seems like they're really trying to laser down on where exactly they are. And a good question to ask is just why? Um, if, if it's often linked to a series of different events that have taken place. It's linking together the Old Testament and the New. So I'd encourage you, um, this week, if, you, if you're looking for something to study, go back, take a look at some of the places listed in this chapter. Um, trace them from the Old Testament to the New. Place names are sometimes like laces on a shoe, tying together two sets of eyelets. The Mount of Olives is one of these significant places. It's a very significant place in the scripture. And if you, yeah, again, go and research this on your own time. But two things I want to point out about the Mount of Olives that are of importance for us and why I think Matthew's noting it at the very beginning of chapter 21. It's of prophetic importance and it's of panoramic importance. Prophetic importance, panoramic importance. Prophetic because in Zechariah, which is going to be quoted a lot in this chapter. It's going to be cited a lot. If you want to go and, and go like, hey, you want a, a neat Old Testament, New Testament contrast, read Zechariah this week, and you'll see it really start to come to life in Matthew 21. But in Zechariah 14.4, it's prophesied that the Messiah would come and stand on the Mount of Olives. But additionally, um, this is also just a, this place is a fantastic lookout onto all of Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem and, and you can see the temple from this place. So you could stand here and, and have a u- unique panoramic view and, and reflect back on all of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. Thousands of years of history. Think of God's promise to Abraham, saying they would make them a, a, a very vast, numerous nation. And, and actually, during this week, there's millions of people from all over Jerusalem gathered together in the city. Think of God delivering them from Egypt. Remember the whole Passover. That's actually being celebrated this week in Jerusalem. It's why all the people are there. Think of God, God's conquest of the nations before them and even giving them this land. All of this kind of unique perspective from the Mount of Olives. And front and center, as you stand on the Mountain Olives and Mount of Olives and look towards Jerusalem, is Mount Zion. Mount Zion and the Temple Mount on top of it. This is, this is the place where um, Abraham walked up with Isaac. 
to sacrifice him. This is where David built an altar, averting the wrath of God against the nation of Israel. This is where David's son Solomon built the first temple. So much history, so much on display here. They come to this panoramic lookout with all these things in front of them for a grand revealing of a few different things, but our first point is just this, who Jesus is. They come here for a unique perspective and revelation of who Jesus is. This chapter is going to put many different attributes of God, of Jesus, on display here, but there's five that I want us to see. The first is that the text reveals Jesus as a prophet. You see the first three verses, it says, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Jesus tells his disciples precisely where to go find this donkey and her colt exactly what to say. And and verse 6 says that um, they actually go and find things in in the way Jesus said they were going to be. What we're seeing, Jesus being portrayed as a prophet. And the people in verse 11, if you take a look there, when they say, who is this man? They actually say, it's the prophet, Jesus. But as we read on, we're going to see that he's not only speaking prophecies, he's also fulfilling prophecy as well. Verse 4 a quote, quotation from Zechariah again, 9 verse 9, says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to your daughter in Zion, Behold, your king's coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, a beast of burden. This is a prophecy made 500 years beforehand. Uh, what's significant is Jesus doesn't just go buy a donkey and ride into town, kind of fulfill the prophecy by his own strength and might. There's, there's also probably thousands of people who have ridden into town on a donkey before, and they weren't throwing a parade for them. They do it for Jesus because he fulfills prophecy while prophesying. He fulfills prophecy while prophesying. That's miraculous. It's miraculous. Additionally, the, 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 the parade, the palm branches, the cloaks, this is a, a first century way, essentially, of rolling out the red carpet. This wasn't an everyday occurrence. They did it for Jesus because they thought he was coming back to take authority, as this verse says. Behold, your king is coming to you. They thought he was coming to to become the king, the physical king of Israel. And this is the second thing that I see Jesus being revealed at as, as a king. This quotation from Zechariah 9 9 says that the future king of Israel would come in on a donkey. But it's also notable that Jesus isn't the type of king who comes into town riding a war horse. He's coming into town on a donkey, a a peaceful little donkey. It's because Jesus doesn't come as a warrior king, but as a priest king, a priestly king. The The third characteristic of who Jesus is that I see being portrayed here is that he's a priest, Take a look at verse 12. It said, Jesus entered the temple, driving out those who bought and sold. Additionally, in Mark 11, which is the parallel uh, text in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus held people back from carrying things through, their sacrifices through the temple. He's disrupting what's going on in the temple. He's cleansing the temple of, of false worship. 
and consumeristic practices. He's, he's doing priest's work. And it's through these very same actions that Jesus is revealed as Lord. You see this um, beginning in verse 2 and 3. He tells them to go into town, find the donkey. If anyone asks them any questions, tell them the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Now, in Greek, this word Lord, it's the, the Greek word kyrios. It's a word that refers to um, masters of slaves, to, to landowners, things like that, but also to God. So, so what type of kyrios, what kind of Lord is Jesus? Well, notice that when they go into town, they don't say, a local lord needs your donkey. They don't say, my, my, my nomadic rabbi requires your mule. They don't say, even my lord needs it. They say, the lord, the lord leads him, the, the lord of all, the one who owns everything. He sent me for your donkey. Jesus here, what's he doing? He's revealing who he is. What is the basis that Jesus can tell people just to march into town and take people's animals? It's because they're already his. They're his. He's calling himself the Lord of all. Verse 13, he, you'll see he refers to the temple as his house. A couple verses later, he actually receives worship inside of the temple. These are dangerous, dangerous things to do. He's claiming divinity. It's a dangerous action. It's things like this that are going to get Jesus killed. But it's also things like this that his disciples and, and, and people like us get to look back on and glory in. Because Matthew is also presenting Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah who came to to save his people, and a Messiah who is anything less than God could not be a suitable substitute for the whole world. A Messiah who is not also a prophet and a priest and a king could not actually stand in our place. If Jesus was gonna be the Messiah, he had to be God and he is. So let me ask, where, where, where do we get this idea? Where do we see this theme? You might be thinking of Jesus being the Messiah. Where is that presented in the text? Well, that begins all the way back in Matthew 1.1. That, in fact, is the point of, of Matthew's gospel, is to reveal who Jesus is. But Matthew 1.1, it opens by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's, it's, a, it's a title that refers to the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah that God promised to be sending to deliver his people. And the people believe that he is this Messiah. We know this because they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, Hosanna, this is a, a, a word from Psalm 118. It's a messianic word. It's got strong messianic, meaning um, language pertaining to this coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Here's what we need to know about this word. Tiny nerdy bit. I'll get a little bit nerdy here with you. Um, the word Hosanna, it's not an English word. What the translators of the English Bible have done is they've taken a Greek word and put English letters to it to copy the sound in Greek of the word Hosanna. So Greek, the language of the New Testament, it's just the translators putting letters to copy 
the sound. Now, the way that the Greeks were using this word at the time, very, very similar to how we would use it, and, and you hear it in songs here all the time. It's a, a declaration of hope and praise. Hosanna. Hosanna. I'm not going to sing. Um, you know this songs likely. We, we sing it in a way of saying, as if we're saying, Jesus, you're our savior. Now, I said this is not an English word, but it's also not a Greek word. It's actually a Hebrew word, the language of the Old Testament. And the Greek translators of the New Testament, they were actually doing the same thing we did. They were putting Greek letters to copy the sound of the Hebrew word. Why does that matter? Well, when... When they were translating this, somewhere along the line, some of the meaning actually got lost, lost in translation. It wasn't carried over from Hebrew to Greek. So while in English and, and Greek, this means it's sort of a way of saying, um, you are our savior. In Hebrew, this was actually an imperative or a plea that was saying, save us, we pray. Let me illustrate this. If you were to go on the ferry, go, decide to go to the island, and, and take a selfie. So you pull out your selfie stick, you load in your phone, and you're leaning over the railing, trying to catch one of the resident orca pods and your face on the way by, and you fell over the railing into the water, you would shout, save me, save me, Hosanna. When, when the, the little Kodiak boat was released, or Zodiac, whatever they are, and they came and plucked you out of the water and brought you back up, you would say, Savior, you saved me. Hosanna. Two different ways of using Hosanna. There's irony in the way that the people are using this word Hosanna here. They're shouting, you are the Savior, when they should have been shouting, shouting save us. Save us, please. They're shouting, Savior, when they should have been pleading, save us. They missed the point. They're saying the words, but they've missed the point. And I don't want to move on too quick from here, because there's probably many of us in the room who have done or are doing the same thing. Calling Jesus Savior. Singing songs going through the motions without actually having ever called out to him for saving. There's irony in the anthem they're singing, but let me ask it, is there an irony in ours? Is there an irony in the way that you and I are singing to Jesus? We cannot call Jesus Savior if we have not cried out, save me. We have no right to. And we will not cry out, save me, if we don't realize the predicament that we are in. Just as the Jewish people were confused about how they should be crying out to the Lord, they were also confused about what they needed saving from. And this isn't just a first century problem, it's most definitely a 21st century problem to, as well. We, we don't understand who Jesus is. We won't understand what Jesus came for. And if you don't understand what Jesus came for, the same thing that will happen to us as happens to the crowds who are following Jesus up into Jerusalem. 
this leads us into our second point, is what Jesus came for, the mission that Jesus came for. The first 11 verses of chapter 21 depict a raucous scene. It's Passover week, so there is millions of people in Jerusalem. Jesus' miracles, his teaching, um, the fact that like just a couple days previous, he raised Lazarus from the dead, it's electrified the city. People are looking for him. And it says that thousands, we imagine thousands, I don't know, maybe more, following Jesus, throwing their cloaks down, lopping off palm branches, making a way for him up into Jerusalem. Atmosphere is electric, the expectation is high. The Messiah's here. But in just six verses, six verses, what we're going to see is the, the thousands of people following Jesus up into town disappear, and Jesus leaves town with just sick or just his 12 disciples. And in just six days, the crowds that are crying Hosanna are going to be crying, Crucify him. So, what happens? What happened here? What could lead to such a dramatic change? Well, a radical misunderstanding of the mission that Jesus came for. And as the crowds follow Jesus up into town, if you take a look at the, the topography, the geography, the kind of the, the lay of the land there, you'll see they would have been following Jesus straight up this Mount Zion, straight up. They would have been thinking, we're marching on Rome. We're going to Herod's palace. We're going to go ransack the Roman fortress. We're going to take back power. We're going to take back what's ours. We're going to get our kingdom back. But on the way up, Jesus hangs a right. He takes the rein of this donkey and he turns right. And he doesn't go up to Herod's palace. He doesn't go up to the Roman fortification. He goes to the temple. And what happens to the crowd? They disappear. They misunderstood what Jesus was coming for. He doesn't do what they thought he was going to do. It's easy to follow someone when they look like they're going to accomplish all our goals, right? I mean, this is how voting works, right? We vote for someone, they're going to change everything. And then three years later, Trudeau's popularity is at half of what it was. This happens over and over and over. We grow disillusioned because somebody doesn't take up our cause, doesn't advocate our issue the way that we thought we were going to. They turn and walk away from Jesus because he doesn't take care of their issue. In a few days, instead of shouting Bar or, uh, um, Hosanna, they're going to be shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Barabbas, by the way, another, he's a local insurrectionist. They're thinking probably, this guy will march on Rome with us. This Jesus guy, he didn't go to Rome. He didn't come overthrow the ten, uh, the, the Herod's palace. Give us Barabbas, he'll fight. He's a wild man. What is it that we want Jesus to free us from? What do we want Jesus to free us from? What kind of savior do we want Jesus to be? In other words... Answering this, it's going to determine whether we continue to follow him or not. Whether we hang a left when Jesus takes a right. 
Crowds aren't worshiping Jesus when he comes into town. We saw that with the misuse of the word Hosanna. They're worshiping the idea of someone giving them what they want, when they want it, and the way they want it, on the terms that they want. They want a king that will give them the kingdom they imagine. They want a king that will deliver the only, only the things that they think they need delivering from. And we are the same way. I am the same way. And I've seen so many people walk away from the Lord for the exact same reason. Now listen, Jesus, I will worship you if you will give me this thing that I want, that woman, if you can give me that experience, that raise, that car, that promotion, that house, that glory, that praise from others, that sense of belonging, that companionship, that purpose. Oh, Jesus, then I'll worship you like never before. But when it doesn't happen like we thought, we take off, don't we? When we're, that thing that we're using Jesus for doesn't materialize, we're gone. Jesus never fails to deliver what he promises, just what we expect. Jesus never fails to deliver what he promises, just what we expect. We want happiness now, we want the pleasure now, the the, the payoff now, the sex now, the serenity now, the, the, the glory now, the companionship now, the mansion now. Those are the things that we grow disillusioned over. What are we prone to using Jesus to get? What are you prone to using Jesus to get? What, what has made you like the crowds, turn and leave Jesus in the past? Or what tempts you in the present? Does that thing really have anything to do with the mission that Jesus came to accomplish? Or is it perhaps part of the mission that we've given him? The Jews, they missed their Messiah because they misunderstood who, not only who he was, but what he came to do. And we're the same. If, if our problem can be fixed by a politician or a banker or a warrior, we're disillusioned about what our problem really is. If the problem we want saving from can be fixed by anything less than a prophet, priest, king, God, Messiah, we do not understand our problem. So what is the mission Jesus came for? What did he go to the temple to do? Why did he go there instead of to Rome? Well, read with me verse 12, 13. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, we read that, you might think, like, Jesus? You should be more like Jesus. What are you doing? Thrashing around in the temple. We've got to understand his anger and his actions um, make sense when we understand what he was coming to do. He goes to the court and turns over the temples. Again, Mark says um, that he's holding people back from carrying their sacrifices through. What's he doing? He wants people to see what the whole thing was about. It's Passover week. He's saying, don't bring any of those other animals in for sacrifice. I'm the one who's come to be sacrificed. 
The whole temple system, the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to him. It wasn't a Messiah who came to free them from political oppressors, but from their spiritual one. He wasn't a Messiah who came to eliminate the debt they owed to Rome, but the debt they owed to God. He came to free them from this pattern of continual sacrifices that Hebrews 10 says could never take away sin and be a better sacrifice that did work once and for all for everyone. Matthew's gospel, again, is written to Jewish people who grew up in this context. This was the air of what they breathed. And he leads his whole gospel forward to this moment, this this week, which will ultimately culminate in, in Jesus being killed on the cross, being our final Passover lamb. But it begins with Jesus overturning tables in the temple. Why? What's the significance of that? Well, um, Jewish pilgrims, the, if you know anything about Jewish history, the Jewish people are scattered all around the known world at this time, and they all come together for this yearly celebration of Passover. They're coming from um, wide and far, and they make their way to the temple. And the priests had, had come up with a unique system so people didn't need to tote animals all across the countryside, whereby they would sell you an animal at the temple. How handy. They would sell you an animal at your convenience, for just a minor fee. And then, of course, they couldn't take your filthy pagan lucre from these other nations. That couldn't be used in the temple. So we'll set up, we'll set up um, a money exchange center, a payday loan center, where you can bring us your money, we'll exchange it for a fee, and give you a currency you can use in the temple. And these temple, or these tables, they're set up in the temple, not outside, inside the temple. Um, in a place, I think a few months ago, we put, a, we put an image up here, so if you, hopefully you have a picture of where this is, but the temple of the, gen, or the courtyard of the Gentiles. They've taken over the courtyard that was meant for the nations. Isaiah 56, 7, God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. They've taken up the place for those people and turned it into a, a, a conversion stand, a place where animals are sold. Jesus overturns the tables and he holds people from sacrificing because this whole thing has become more about their kingdom than his. Become an elaborate show and it had little to do with the true worship of God to the point where the God of the universe walks into the middle of it and they miss him. Are we more concerned with his kingdom or ours? Is our service and our gathering more about him or us? If Jesus walked in here, would we even notice him? If we're expecting Jesus to pimp our life out, dispense everything we want like a big cosmic pinata, save us from our pet peeves, advocate our personal agendas, then we're going to miss him. Jesus came to redeem us from slavery to sin, to die the death that we deserve, to pay the ransom for our lives, to reconcile us to right relationship with the God and to gift us eternal life. If there is any issue bigger in the forefront of our minds than our sin, we will miss him. 
because we've misunderstood what our problem is. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in the trespasses and sins that we're walking. If he doesn't come and give us life, we're dead. There's no kingdom to defend here. We're dead. Our problem is sin, not anything else. We're in rebellion against our creator, and there's only one way to be made right. But we lose track of this. This is why it's important we have these reminders. We lose track of this. We end up drunk in Babylon, like Revelation talks about. We're intoxicated by the culture around us. This is why, so we continue reading now, Jesus leaves town without the crowd he came in with. Verse 18, you see they've left town and then the next morning it says, in the morning, he's returning to the city and he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come to you again. And then instantly this fig tree withers. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol for the people of Israel. So when Jesus curses the fig tree here, what's going on is that he's not letting out his frustration on a bush. He's not having a temper tantrum. He's speaking symbolically about Israel and uh, the religious system. Mark, uh, Mark 11, again, the Mark account, you can always bounce over to these parallel gospel accounts and kind of you can glean a lot. It says that from a distance, Jesus saw green leaves and he came up to approach the fig tree. And when he got there, he found no fruit. So then he cursed it. And uh, what we need to know about fig trees is they actually produce their fruit first then their leaves. So when Jesus sees leaves from afar, he's going, oh, it's already got fruit. And so he makes his way over to this fig tree and he gets there and he finds no fruit, finds that it's faily, completely failing to produce what it's supposed to. Likewise, it's possible to be doing things that make us appear righteous and religious and completely be missing the point. Our services, they, they can be full of lights, great preaching, great bands, everything going on and be completely devoid of Jesus, completely devoid of the fruit that God actually wants from our worship. Outwardly, we can have this veneer of having it all together, having the good clothes on, knowing uh, all the, the catchy Christian things to say, having the verses memorized, being able to pop a smile on command and look like you have it all together. And all the while, being completely missing the point. We have all the leaves, but none of the fruit. This is how you fall into that same trap, by the way. You measure your right standing based off of how many fig leaves you produce instead of how much fruit you produce. You can produce leaves. You can produce leaves like crazy just white-knuckle effort. You can produce leaves. You cannot produce fruit. You cannot produce fruit by your own effort. You can't do it by your own strength. Flip with me over to John um, chapter 15. John 15, um, verses 1 to 5. Uh, this is what Jesus says about fruit. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't produce fruit. We can produce leaves. So how do we... How do we go about producing this fruit God requires, not just the leaves we're prone to? Matthew 8, a little earlier in Matthew's gospel, John says it. He condemns the nation with these words. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. We repent when we realize we're wrong. If, our, if we place our trust in leaves, these outward shows of religiosity... We, we're not going to repent. When we realize what it is God requires from us in the desperation of our situation, that's when we repent. If we never get to this point of realizing the mess we're in, we will never cry out to Jesus. We will never cry, Hosanna, Savior, if we have not cried, Hosanna, save me. We won't cry, save me, unless we realize that there's something that we need saving from take you one other place. Go to Revelation uh, 7. This came to mind this week because it's a scene very similar to what we're seeing in Matthew 21. Revelation 7, uh, verse 9 on, it says this. So um, the apostle John, he says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Kind of like the crowd going up to the temple. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples, the ones that weren't in the courtyard because they'd turned them into a place of profit and sale. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, not fig leaves, with palm branches in their hands, just like the people on the street. And crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. A true way of crying Hosanna. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces, worshiping, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me and, and, and said, who are these? clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They're the ones who've recognized their savior because they've recognized what they have need saving from, and they've come humbly, repentantly, pleading, save me. And Jesus has faithfully dressed them in robes far better than the fig leaves we pile together like Adam and Eve, trying to make ourselves look not naked and not needy. Jesus clothes us in garments of white. And these are our two options. One day we will stand before God in fig leaves or in righteous robes. Read the last, uh, flip back over to Matthew 21. Let's read the last three verses together before we close. 
And as we uh, transition to the third point, which is the mission Jesus has for his people, uh, beginning in verse 20, we read, When the disciples saw that this fig tree withered, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. Maybe a familiar text to some. Um, If you've been around the church for any length of time, you have surely heard this taught in a false way. Um, There are many false teachers who twist and distort this. Um, They'll say, yeah, yeah, the fig trees represent Israel, but the mountains represent uh, things like jet planes and wealth and the cure for every disease you might ever have. If you have enough faith and white-knuckle belief, you can cast any mountain into the sea. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm not convinced from the text, at least. Once again, notice the setting. Notice the setting. They've left. They're headed back into Jerusalem. They're seeing the temple up in front of them the fig tree symbolic of the Jewish people in front of them. But what, what is this mountain? The mountain I think he's referring to is Mount Zion, the one right in front of them. When Jesus tells them he's gonna, they're going to be able to throw this mountain into the sea, it's because the mission Jesus has for his followers is just that. Throwing away are systems of worship that are built all around leaf production and have nothing to do with fruit. The same thing that the entire temple system atop Mount Zion had become famous for. Trading in tons of things except the worship that God actually wanted. Remember, uh, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, John, John 4. She says to him, um, where are we going to worship? Where are we going to worship? Um, on here, Mount Gerizim, that's where the Samaritans worshipped. Or in, in Jerusalem, here's what Jesus says, John 4, 21, it's up on the screen. Woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's Jesus saying, one day, everything going on in that mountain is going to be gone. Today, there's no place for the Jews to go and sacrifice for their sins because the final Passover lamb came and they missed him. The reason you and I don't go to Jerusalem to worship in Mount Zion It's because there's no salvation in any temple that's there. Jesus is where our salvation comes from. And our role, our mission, is to go to every other mountain that promises salvation to those who ascend it and knock it down. There's no salvation there. The the Bible says in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven by which man may be saved or by which they can be saved. Because no other God is prophet, priest, king, God, Messiah, except Jesus Christ. We're going to respond by 
praising his name, and I would love to close us short church in a word of prayer. Jesus, I just um, reflect on all my sin that I'm so prone to forget. I reflect on all the ways that I try to manufacture you into a savior of so many other things, and I lose track of what you actually came to do. I pray for every single one of us just that we'd be reminded our vision would be filled afresh with the accomplishments of the cross, what you've done for us, and that for those in the room who've not yet made you Lord of their life, who've not cried out, save me, that this morning would be the day that they do that. And I pray and I plead in your mighty name, by the power of the Spirit, I pray to you, Father God, amen.